I didn't have a life till I got married. Two blocks down the street from where the church I served was a McDonald's. I had books in my office and McDonald's two blocks from my. What else did a young guy need? I got married and not long after we started a family and my wife, I never will forget, made me bring my books home. The kids wanted to be around me more. I learned you can't be everywhere and you're going to let someone down. Welcome to The Calling. As usual, we're here with uh, someone from Quick to Listen, our other podcast. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. Quick to Listen. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Uh, You're talking about the ESV this week? Yeah. English Standard Version? Yes. I heard that it's... (laughs) Stop interrupting you after I say I heard it's Well, I just want to orient your listeners. So Crossway Publishers, which is right down the street from us, announced that they had landed on a permanent text ESV translation that will exist in perpetuity, similar to the King James Version. Yeah. We reported on it last week. And I mean, to me, it was like, oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But it's gotten a lot of traffic and buzz on our on our website. So we're actually talking with the biblical scholar Craig Blomberg about it. It turns out that people are very opinionated about translation philosophy, Bible yes. translation philosophy. Which is not something that I've thought a whole lot about. <laughs> right. Like I've used the same 1984 NIV Bible since I was 12. Right. And I think it's awesome. Yeah. I, and I've no, never questioned its, you know, authority or how it got to me, how the words got to me. But obviously those are things biblical scholars need to think through. I use the ESV because all my friends do. Mm. So if all your friends jumped off a big ESV shaped cliff... No, because that's dangerous. It's not <laughs> dangerous to read the ESV, depending on who you talk to. Right. Um, so the around the office, we this is where we're supposed to talk about something happening around the office. What's well, happening? I thought we had a really good snack today. Oh man, what was the snack? It was cold banana, brew I had, coffee. Yeah, banana bread, banana walnut bread, pumpkin yeah. bread. Yeah. That was before a really interesting conversation with Sam Rodriguez, who's on our board. He was great. I enjoyed that. He was that. awesome. Very open, very candid. and Fire emoji. And a lot of fire emojis going on. Yeah. We learned a lot. About- what did you think about his comment about Latinos being able to take the crusade of Billy Graham and the march of Martin Luther King Jr. and, and combine those visions. That made a lot of sense to me So because I had been thinking for a while, like, we got to be able to do that. And right. it's interesting that in one sort of culture, it's right. embodied. It's right. embodied in that culture right. in a way that it's not particularly well mm-hmm. in other cultures. Yeah. I mean, a lot of conversations at CT are focused on, like, how do we get more Latino readers when, in fact... It's not that we have something to teach them as much as they have to teach us, because just demographically, as as Sammy said this morning, like our majority white churches, many of them will be much more multi-ethnic and Latino majority in like 30 years. Yep, for sure. So today on the show, we have H.B. Charles Jr. He is a preacher at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church, which is a church name with a lot of adjectives in it (laughs) yeah it's in shiloh it's metropolitan and it's baptist where is shiloh jacksonville florida Mm. and the orange park i think orange park it's like both 
it's for both Jacksonville, Florida and Orange Park. Those are places okay. around that area. Yeah. Um, he also wrote two books. He wrote a bunch of books, actually, but uh-huh. t- the two most recent, I, th- I believe, are called On Preaching, and he wrote another called On Pastoring. Those are basically okay. like primers on preaching and pastoring. Uh, a very well-respected preacher. He, I think right at this moment, there is, or very soon, I th- at least, there is a uh, preaching conference called Cutting It Straight that he has hmm. helped start. Cutting he started it straight? Cutting it straight. I've just never heard that phrase before. I'm cutting it straight. Never heard it before. It's a preaching conference, particularly focusing on expository preaching, mm-hmm. which we talk a bit about in the podcast. He talks about how a lot of people think of expository preaching as like John MacArthur verse by mm-hmm. verse. And mm-hmm. Actually can be pretty varied hmm. exercise. So we talked about that. And we also talked about this is the most interesting thing about the podcast, in my opinion, is that he started. Guess what age he was when he started pastoring a church? Probably like 12. <laughs> Okay, that was too low. That's too low. 18? 17. Wow. He was a senior in high school. Not when he started preaching. When he started pastoring a church. I could barely tie my shoes at that age. I definitely could tie my shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I could barely drive at that age. But I did wear Velcro shoes in kindergarten. Aw, were you made fun of? Yes. What was the most, besides the fact that he started... Mm-hmm. pastoring a church at age 17 what was like the most crazy thing that you heard in your conversation with H. that H. he had blown up pictures of this is in the big quote on our website that okay. we put but he had blown up pictures of preachers on the wall instead of like michael jordan or michael jackson <laughs> he That's literally awesome. had posters of preachers on the walls what he told me did he say who like spurgeon he i think he did yeah, he said who, but I didn't recognize any it's of the your names. big <laughs> dorm room style poster of Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> right. Well, his were all black preachers, I think. Mm, mm-hmm. So they weren't the same preachers I had on my walls growing up. That's so funny. I, I feel like a pre- heathen now. Because what did you have on your walls? I had like posters of friends. The TV show, not even my actual friends. I had Earthworm Jim on my wall. <laughs> Okay, I don't feel so bad anymore. (laughs) That was video game, in case you didn't know. Well, I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, it's going to be good. In Christianity Today magazine, we have some stuff about... Yeah, we have this awesome election-themed package in the October issue, Mm -hmm. which we'll mail out next week. We've already dropped the package online. Yeah, but it's way more pretty in print. It actually turned out pretty well online. Yeah, it did. But it's way nice in print, not to mention... It's in the 60th anniversary issue, mm-hmm. which is going to be a big deal. There's yeah. a lot of cool stuff in that issue. People should check out. Yeah, it's a really good issue. Ron Sider, James Dobson, and show Baraka in the election package. I'll let you guess which one's there. Who's for what? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got a special deal for those who are listening to The Calling. You can get a year-long subscription for a lowest rate available, $10. Just head over to orderct.com slash the calling to subscribe, and you'll be supporting... Thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to produce this podcast every week. Anyway, here's H.B. Charles Jr. I think I left off the junior, but there it's important. There's a junior on his name because mm. his dad named him H.B. Charles. Also, fun fact, H.B. <laughs> doesn't stand for anything. It's just H.B. On his website about page, it says, if you look at his birth certificate, it says H.B. Charles. That's funny. It stands for nothing. I like it. I like it too. It has a lot of like... It's a mystery. Yeah. Let's think of what it could mean. He brings it. 
<laughs> there we go. Holy bravado. Holy bravado is good. And here's our podcast with Holy Bravado Charles Jr. Enjoy. Los Angeles is not even a part of the Bible wardrobe whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Which do you prefer, the Bible belt or not a part of the Bible wardrobe? Um, wow, that's a very difficult thing to to answer. It's home now because uh-huh. it's where the Lord has called me. Sure. And yet the bulk of my life has been spent in Los Angeles. You know, family, everything is there. So I'm here with H.B. Charles. You're a pastor, right? I am. Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church Charlotte. in Jacksonville, Florida. Jacksonville, Florida. You're responsible for a preaching conference. Seems like you're doing a lot these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always ask at the beginning of the podcast, how would you define your calling? How would I define my calling? So when I was ordained still as a teenager. Mm. How old? I was 16, 17 years old when I was I think 16 years old. You were ordained. They didn't make you go to seminary or anything. That did not happen. That should have happened. (laughs) Really? You think so? In retrospect, you think you should have gone to seminary first? Oh, I do. I do. I don't commend the notion of calling a 17-year-old boy to be the pastor of the church. (laughs) It's just... Just in general. Yeah. That's that's a general rule. Uh You should not call high school seniors to be the pastor of your church. (laughs) So, why... Why did that happen? That seems like something that would happen like in the olden days. It Mm -hmm. doesn't seem like something that would happen recently. Yeah. So I was in the church that my father served for 40 years. And I started preaching at the age of 11. My father had a lot of friends there in the Los Angeles area who owed him debts for the kindness he has shown them over the years, and they paid him back by preaching his son. So by the time I'm in my early teens, I am preaching some Sunday school thing, some youth thing, uh, virtually every week. But it gets me in the Word, so I am growing spiritually, and there is an irresistible calling on my life. I've never, when I hear guys talk about running from the ministry, I get that, theoretically, experientially. Uh-huh. I don't know what that means. And plus, like, in the Bible, the dude that tried to run Jonah, it didn't work out too well. So mm-hmm. I'm just, but um, so it never occurred to you to to leave the ministry when I was clear, and I was bringing up the ordination at 16 because a part of my explanation about my calling was to simply quote the words of the Apostle Paul that necessity had been laid upon me and woe unto me if I, I preach not the gospel. I, I felt that as a as a youth. I knew that I was. this was the calling God had placed on my life. I had no desire to do anything else. My friends had Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, uh, Michael Jackson on their walls. I had blown up pictures of preachers on my, on what my wall. What preachers? Uh, like Caesar Clark okay. <laughs> and okay. famous uh, African-American preachers uh-huh. and um, fell in love with a girl. And she was two years younger than me. And... The challenge of our relationship was that um, at a young age, my life was charted. Yeah. And I would say to her, listen, you can be anything you want to. I don't have a choice, you know. So if you're going with me, this is my life. What was her response? We've been married 18 years now. Okay. Yeah. So she immediately said, sure, that sounds good. No, not immediately. Okay. <laughs> but um, we um, just had to be with, we could not be together. And, you know, now in my 40s. I feel that call even stronger. 
I feel that burden and that necessity and that irresistible pull to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to shepherd his people even stronger. Were there things that would have made a normal person run from the ministry that you went through and you just sat there going, why, why do I not want out of this? Absolutely. I, I was a preacher's kid. You know, I, I listen to young people and m- millennials who, who talk about church hurt and they have a disdain for the church. And I don't get a chance to talk about this as much. But, you know, first of all, I, I trade war stories with anybody. Anybody, you know, like Paul in Philippians three, you know, anyone who thinks he has more reason to be confident in his flesh, I have more, you know. <laughs> and if anyone has a reason to 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 be angry with the church, I feel like I have more. I saw up close how ugly church could be. A lot of people who may know a part of my biography know that I got called to my first church when I was seventeen, and by the time I was twenty one, however, they were trying to put me out of that church. They drugged me to court. Wow. Over organizational stuff. As I'm growing as a pastor, I'm saying, hey, you can't teach Sunday school if you don't come to Bible study. And, yeah. and know, they took you to court because of they, that. They tried to kick me out of the church. I, I mean, I've seen church at its ugliest, but I don't know how you have the gospel without having the church. I don't know how you can have a high view of Christ and a low view of the church. And I don't know how you can love the word without having a corresponding love for the church that First Peter 3 says is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That the truth can't stand without the church that makes it stand. Sorry to go off for a rant there, but I had plenty of, of reasons. But everything that causes me to love Christ causes me to love the church. Those things that cause me to cherish the gospel cause me to cherish the church. Those things that call me to be devoted to the word call me to be devoted to the church. And so it's just been a, I haven't looked back. I had a similar experience, I feel like, where my first ministry position just kind of flamed out, and not necessarily because of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure the perspectives are different, right? Sure. But, but it just kind of like went badly in a way that I was like, I don't know if this is for me. And the more I started to like try and... I was really lucky because I went to a seminary in Louisville where there was a high view of church in general, and then I got in a church where there was they were serious about the local church community, and doing it well. And so I experienced a solid, loving church family in a way that caused me to go like, okay, like I think even if even if the church hurts people, and you you know, it happens in every church. It happened in, in that church. It happens in church I'm in now, right? Mm-hmm. Like people hurt people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's funny how God pulls us. And I think a lot of ways, like people describe salvation this way, I always think of it as, for me, the struggle has been with the church. But God has pulled me to it in that way. So I am a sinner that has a lot of long way to go in my spiritual development. But as I look back now, a little bit removed from some of those experiences, man, I, I, I look back with, with, with genuine thanksgiving because God used those persons and those events and those settings to teach me how to, well, to first to teach me how to be a man. But to teach me how to be a Christian, and I mean a, a genuine Christian, I, I was forced to forgive, to love, and to serve, and to pray. Taught me how to preach. Um, not just the study of the text, but the I, I became a shepherd not just by, by qualifications of, of life and aptitude to teach, but really I became a shepherd when all of those dynamics were refined yeah. in the nitty-gritty world of dealing with the sheep. Yeah, so when I first read it years ago, 
and it caught me. I thought it was just Philippians 1, verse 3, where he says, I, I thank my God upon all my remembrance of you. And then you, when you read forward and hear about the disunity, calling people out by name, and you say, there's no way you can believe that. But he did believe, verse 6 of chapter 1, that God has begun a good work and he will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. And because his confidence was in God, not in people, it, that shaped his perspective. And in spite of unresolved issues, difficult personalities, and painful experiences, he was able to say, every time I think about the church, it causes me to thank my God. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Why did you want to start a preaching conference? First of all, because... I have a burden for expositional preaching, and I believe the most faithful way to handle the Word of God is expositionally, where you are, where the main point of the Scripture, the God-intended point of the Scriptures, becomes the message of the of the sermon. I don't think that's just a optional, selective thing. I believe. The commitment to exposition is is properly rooted in the nature of Scripture. I, I think the exhortation of Second Timothy four verses one and two, and is built on the foundation, I should say, of the declaration of Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. If all Scripture is breathed out by God, you should preach the Word. Secondly, um, I started a preaching conference because I am the beneficiary of so many who have poured into me, and really, I it's a it's a an attempt for me to find a way to pay it forward and to be a blessing to others as God has used so many people to be a blessing to me. Early in my ministry, I benefited from being at a conference uh, where I heard Jasper Williams, famous African-American preacher, and Stephen Olford, E.K. Bailey, famous African-American preacher, and Warren Worsby. And it just broadened my perspective. And I think that was an important experience in my life that um, taught me that to be an effective preacher, you not only need to, to hear other preachers, you need to hear other preachers who don't do it like you do it. You need to see how God is blessing people who don't approach the task the way you do. And I felt like I also wanted to contribute that. God has given me friends throughout the body of Christ that um, I was confident would uh, be willing to help serve. And I was hoping that the experience I had had would be a, a blessing to 
others. And, and I really think as the church preaches, so the church believes. And I feel like if you are investing in preachers being more faithful, you're going to bless the church. It's interesting the the point about showing people there are different ways to do it. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of people have an assumption about expository preaching. Sure. That it's like verse by verse through the Bible, a very specific way. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people I know think of John MacArthur, right? Mm-hmm. Like they think of his method, which is fine method, but not the method. I totally agree. I would say, you know, I learned expository preaching sitting in the back of John MacArthur's church on Sunday nights. And then when I first started taking my first homiletics class, the teacher kind of taught on that model, and that was great. The next homiletics class I had, the teacher's trying to teach us how to... My first assignment was to write a sermon on the entire chapter of James, chapter 3. And you know, with the John MacArthur model in my head, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what in the world is this guy talking it's about? like 17 <laughs> sermons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never will forget the point he was trying to make. He He said... Expository preaching has nothing to do with the style of the message. It has everything to do with how you treat the text. And that is the essence of expository Which is preaching. putting the meaning of the text first, right? Putting the meaning of the text first. The How it is structured, how many points, and all of those issues of style and organization have nothing to do with what exposition is. A textual sermon can have three points. A topical sermon can have three points. The points of the sermon have no bearing on whether or not it's expositional. You're right. The meaning of the text is the driving factor in an expository preaching. In your ministry, what is the most significant struggle that you face? If you were to come to me and ask me, how can I pray for you? I often have people say to me, I am praying for you, for which I am very grateful. If you ask me, you pull me aside. And say, is there a specific way I can pray for you? I would say the first thing that it, by default is going to come to my mind is time management. I, I think that's just an ongoing struggle for me. Um, it, it always has been. Um, as a full-time pastor, all of my pastorate, and you're not checking in with anyone, you have to be responsible for using your time well. And there are so many good things that are pulling for your attention. I would just say you could spend your week doing many good, noble, wonderful things, and then you haven't spent really any time studying. And on on the Lord's Day, you're going to have, in most instances, your best opportunity to impact your congregation, and you haven't prepared for that because you were trying to be in every meeting, every hospital, every event. So I really think that, and I just would say even more so for me, as the Lord is opening more opportunities. It's it's a it's an additional challenge. I think I just realized how hard that would be. So I'm an editor and sometimes I want to take a special interest in a piece, but I don't have time. I have to delegate it to someone else. That is not the same as saying I can't come to your hospital visit. Mm-hmm. I have to delegate that to someone else. Mm-hmm. That is a much more loaded thing to say. You're letting people down like directly, right? Well, yes. I, but I would say you know, and I would say when I was a single pastor, that wasn't a factor. I didn't have a life till I got married. So you just worked like crazy when you were a single pastor. I'm telling you, two blocks from where the church I served, two blocks down the street, was a McDonald's. I had books in my office and McDonald's two blocks from my... What else did a young guy need? <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. I got married, and not long after, we, we started a family. And my wife, I never will forget, made me bring my books home so that... The kids wanted to be around me more. I think at that point, I learned you can't be everywhere and you're going to let someone down. 
And I'm also I also believe if Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says it is our job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And I think I had to get our church there to serve one another um, so that it's not dependent that the pastor's job is not to be the chaplain. I think you need to be with their, your people in moments of need, in moments of crisis. But you are not just a glorified chaplain. I, God brought around me a, a group of elders. So it was several other guys with me. And I, eventually we got to a place where we were able to share some of those counseling, visitation, weddings. My first church never let anybody do funerals but me. They they didn't let one of the other elders marry him, but I had to bury him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure what that what the implication of that <laughs> yeah, is. I don't know either. It's weird. <laughs> but it is a it is a challenge. You know, a young pastor thinks the more staff you get, the, the more the more this is going to be a blessing. And then you find out with staff you have to manage people, and you're like refereeing fights, and you're <laughs> you know you're this you know they're arguing over the budget and over space and all of those things. Um, there are these challenges, and you just have to be very, very selective. If not, the good will be the enemy of the best. What's your biggest fear when it comes to your ministry? When I was a young preacher, I was a boy preacher, and my father was overly protective of me. And there were some things he would just say no to, things he would not let me participate in or attend or do, or things he would force me to do. And he said, I don't want you to be a flash in the pan. I want you to have longevity and fulfill your ministry. What did he mean by that? I think my father had seen young preachers with gift shoot up and then flame out. I think he had seen moral failures, turn away from doctrine, a lot of those kinds of things that I just felt like he wanted to protect me from. And even even he just often warned me about sensationalism. You know, some level of notoriety in your ministry can be a dangerous thing to your soul Mm -hmm. if you don't guard your heart. And I I feel like now as a middle-aged pastor, I get it now. I just thought he was just being strict, unnecessarily so. But now at this stage of my ministry, I get it. And I just want to I want to finish strong, however long that is. And I hope, you know, this is the Philippians one uh, thing. You know what I choose? I don't know. Uh, I'd love to be with Jesus. I hope the Lord as well gives me, you know, a long, fruitful ministry. But I want to I want to finish strong. And I think now about ministry choices concerning the, the long haul. I want my ministry to be Paul, 2 Timothy 2, that I can hand it off to things you've seen and heard of me. Not just heard, but things you've seen and heard. I've delivered to you in the presence of others. Now you passing on to faithful men will be able to teach others also. Do you have like specific ways of keeping yourself from becoming too much of a big flash? You know what I mean? Like, Do you reject things outright sometimes because you're concerned about getting too big? I, I do. I am trying to. Um, I'm just organizing a group of our elders to be our speaking engagement request team. I forgot. This is where. like a thing. This is like a thing pastors do apparently, because you're not the first person who's told me this. So I'm I'm trying to take. I'm trying to get other eyes on invitations. Do you think it's become a harder struggle in recent years for people generally? Like, is this a new thing? The whole celebrity pastor temptation. You know, I don't know. When I grew up, and I. I <laughs> I just really wouldn't consider myself a celebrity pastor. Right, right. Um, but I would say when I was starting out, even though still, quote unquote, mega churches are still a very small fraction of the churches in America, you it was even less so then. The mid-sized church I pastored in Los Angeles was considered a you know great church, and then yeah. you, now you have this this day where 
there are thousands of, of people. And I think that's relatively new. I think then you have the changes in technology and information. You kind of can be ubiquitous everywhere. It's easier to build a platform or it seems comes more naturally to build a platform, it seems like. Absolutely. Yeah, there's like an infrastructure set up for it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a part. I mean, I, I, I read the early church growth stuff. And, you know, that was controversial with people, that you should be focusing on church health, not growth. But now we're beyond church growth. We're talking about how preachers can build their own platform. Right. You know, it's, it's all, it, now it's books on that, you know. It's true that we, we have rejected the church growth thing largely. It seems like most people have rejected the idea of church growth as like a de facto thing. But building your platform, I mean, I think a lot of people reject it. But it also, some people implicitly gravitate towards it, whether they realize that that's what it is or not. Like, there's a lot of acceptance, I guess, is the word for it. There's an acceptance of pastors building their platform. Um, if you could go back in time, get into a time machine, go back in time, step out of that time machine, mm -hmm. introduce yourself to yourself, mm -hmm. what would you say? I would say make, a, make it a top priority early formal training. I started pastoring and then the church started growing, and then I was on the road, and then when that settled down, I had a family. It was just always something, and I think my pastor very early on was like, son, just settle in there, preach, love those people, and finish school. And I wish I would have done that earlier. On a practical thing, I, I wish I would have started writing sermons earlier. I read everything. I prepared well. I didn't take notes. So you would... You would just preach. It was just in my head. Extemporaneously. It would, I think I would craft it in my that head. That's fascinating. But I just did not write things down. That would terrify me. And it just, um, I, I have a pretty good ability to retain what I read. But now down the road, I'm like, I know I, I, know I preached that. I, don't, I couldn't tell you anything about that. I wish I would have. I wish while others early on saw my giftedness to preach. And I think that's how I get called to a church at 17 years old. And so I really focused on preaching. And people encourage that part of me. I wish someone, if I were to go back, I'd be in my ear to challenge me to, to develop a, a shepherd's heart, to love your people, serve your people, be with your people, and that you should view your, your pulpit ministry in the context of the overall responsibilities that you have. I think it's a primary responsibility. I just feel like too early on. And I think this happens to young preachers. You're preaching at them and you're fixing them. And you're the one with all the answers. And it's not until I was growing up and you live with people and you see these are godly people, people who love the Lord. And bad things happen and marriages fall apart and children go astray, not because the parents did something wrong. But sometimes children are just idiots that way. <laughs> just to come alongside them in that way as a shepherd. And how I think my preaching has matured in that way. I think as I have become a better pastor, I have become a better preacher. And I think early on, I disconnected those two. These days, it's just not trendy to like talk excitedly about seminary. Mm -hmm. um, but I hear you saying that you wish you had done formal training up front. Mm -hmm. So is it your suggestion to most pastors to go to seminary first and then follow that up with the pastorate? Yes, Yes, but I would say this much, and I don't know how possible this is in, in a lot of situations. I don't think the two needs should be disconnected. And I know that there are seminaries now with distance training and 
because of financial reasons and technology and so many other factors are having to rethink how they do education. The first part of your question, my answer is emphatically yes. If you can get to school and prepare yourself, there are factors, unless you are extremely disciplined. First of all, you're not going to learn outside of formal seminary. You're not going to learn the languages. You're not going to learn church history. I've heard this over and over. Like, you can just read on your own. You just find the books on the syllabus. And I'm like, I know that that will not happen. Yes. So unless you are extremely disciplined, you're going to need some formal training. But I also think it is not a good thing to be in this um, closed off study detached from the church preparing to to serve the church for two years or more and then you come out with all of the answers and then you get into a church and then you got all the answers and they you finished in two years with all the answers and then two years within two years they run you out of that church <laughs> yeah. and then you start feeling negative about the church and talking about church hurt and sometimes it's just us i know as i was doing studies as a part of a church leading a church I'm sitting in class and I'm learning, but I'm thinking, now, what steps would I have to take to lead us to this? This is, the, this is true. This is what we should be doing. How do I get us there? But I already, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with the reality. Or I'm saying, oh, yeah, I heard what Prof said, but he try, he try, I, try, I go home with that, he'd get me put out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I think it was tempered by that. And I think with the places where formal training and participation, active, continued active participation in the body life of the church is encouraged. I think it's a good thing, real good thing. You've been listening to The Calling. H.B. Charles Jr. is the pastor of Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and the author of On Preaching and On Pastoring. He also has a podcast. It's called On Preaching. You can follow him on Twitter at H.B. Charles Jr. That's H.B. Charles J.R., all one word. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0.